welcome to the Seeking Pearls podcast. This is Rebecca Meitinger. We are in our fourth session going through the book of 1 Peter. We are walking verse by verse through 1 Peter during this summer, and I'm taking about each chapter in about half. So we did two weeks on chapter one, we did one session on the first half of chapter two, and now we will be doing another session on the second half of chapter two. And I gotta say, this is taking me much longer than I thought it would because I am struggling to make time for podcasting this summer as I focus on kids' activities and driving kids around to all their stuff. I am definitely struggling to make time for my own personal study and for podcasting and recording and editing and posting. And so this is taking me far longer than I had anticipated, but uh, it is a joy to study scripture with you. I'm so grateful that today opened up some time that I, I wasn't really expecting this extra a bit of time in my day today. So I've had the studying done for this chunk of scripture done for about a week, just waiting for to find a time that I, that was open <laughs> for me to get down into the basement and do some podcasting in the quiet of my house. And um, I didn't know that some was going to open up today, and I'm so grateful it did. And so here I am uh, to study scripture with you. So we are looking at chapter two. So last week we went, or last time, it was actually a couple weeks ago, we went through verses one through 10 of chapter two. And in those chapters, or sorry, in those verses, we were looking at the fact that God is calling Jews and Gentiles alike to be living stones, to be a holy people, uh, to be a, a, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, God's possession, and it's it's no longer just the Jews, it is also the Gentiles that God has opened the doors for us to become the people of God. He ends in verse 10 by saying, once you were not a people, so he's speaking to the Gentiles here, saying you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, like God has grafted you in. That's the word that the Apostle Paul uses in, in the book of Romans, that God has grafted you in. Now you are the people of God. Then Peter goes on and says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he's just saying, you are now included into the family of God. You are part of God's people. And then after that, there's going to come an exhortation. So, uh, therefore, live like this. That's the exhortation that's going to come. So, in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11, is where we're going to pick up today, and we're going to go through verse 25. So, Paul writes, I'm sorry, Peter. <laughs> Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you, okay, there's the exhortation that's coming, because we have received mercy, we are now the people of God, so dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. All right, first of all, let's let's look at the part where he says foreigners and exiles. So when Peter is calling these people, the foreigners and exiles. He, we've talked about this before. He does, in one sense, mean it literally because they are, there are a lot of people he's writing to in these, this area of northern Turkey where there are people who are hiding and running, leaving, leaving Rome. I mean, they're still in the Roman Empire, but they are, 
they are getting away from the the center of the Roman Empire and running more to the outskirts of the empire and hiding in these earth tunnels in Cappadocia. And so certainly in one one, uh, way of understanding the word, they are actual exiles. And then in another way, he also means that we are believers in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven, and we are living here on earth. So the word he uses for aliens uh, or for exiles here is, uh, the word he uses here is peroikos, peroikos, (laughs) those who live in a place that is not their home, peroikos, those who live in a place that is not their home. And so he's saying we our home is in heaven, but we live here. Our home is the kingdom of God, but we live here. So it's foreigners and exiles is literally foreigners and exiles, and it's also in a spiritual sense, we are foreigners and exiles. And what I think is so cool here is when he's talking about the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. This is this is why sin is sin. I love this description he uses for these sinful desires that they are waging war against your soul. Sin is sin because it hurts us. God hates sin not because he loves to set up rules and regulations and he loves to demand us to follow it. That is not the heart of God. The reason that God hates sin is because sin hurts us. Sin hurts us. It damages our souls. It damages our hearts and minds. And it can, it, obviously it can damage us physically. And so he's telling us, abstain, get away from sinful desires. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. Your soul is the beloved possession of Father God. Your soul is a treasure to God. Uh, John Eldridge, my favorite author, he always says that the human heart is what God is after. And the human heart is what Satan is always trying to keep separated from God. That the the war in the world is con- that's constantly going on is the war over the human heart. And that God loves the human heart. And that the human heart was designed to know the love of God and that no human heart is whole and complete without knowing the hu- the love of God and that Satan's pursuit is constantly to separate the human heart from the love of God. And so Peter is saying the same thing here, that these sinful desires, the reason that they're sin, the reason we abstain from them is because why? Because they are waging war against our very soul, the treasured possession that God loves so dearly, sinful desires wage against that. Now, this word for abstains, when he says abstain from sinful desires, uh, this is the word apekastai in Greek, apekastai, and it means to hold oneself constantly back from. So as we are abstaining from these sinful desires, we are holding ourselves constantly back from it. Like there's a constant tension. Of course, we get stronger. It's just like any weightlifting. The more you push against that tension, the stronger you're going to get. Uh, but it, it is difficult 
This is not supposed to be easy. Abstaining from sin is not supposed to be easy. There's a tension that is going to push back against us, but we get stronger as we do it. All right, in verse 12, he goes on and he says, Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So, Uh, When he says the pagans, he's talking about those around them who have not yet come to Christ, haven't come to know the one true God. Live such good lives amongst them. Live in such a way that they will see you and they want to accuse you of doing wrong. The Christians that we are discussing here, that this letter is going to, are undergoing intense persecution. And they are being accused of doing wrong by believing in Jesus. But he says, live such whole good lives amongst them that they might see your good deeds. And no matter what comes out of your mouth, um, they might tell you that that's not true and that that's blasphemy and they might want to kill you for the words that you speak about Jesus. But the way that you live is a testimony to them. And on the day that God visits, they might glorify God. Okay, what is the day that God visits? Uh, That could mean a number of things. Uh, One thing that it could mean is the return of Christ. That would be the ultimate answer for what that means on the day of God. We want to live in such a way that we make people curious and we open well, not we, but the Holy Spirit, through seeing our lives, the Holy Spirit can speak into people's hearts and begin to open their hearts. And on the day that Jesus returns, we pray that their hearts will be opened enough that they will see him and that they will know and that they will trust on him for eternal life. So that's certainly one way that Peter likely means this. On the day he visits is the ultimate day he visits, which is the return of Christ. But I think on a much more individual level, the day that God visits us is the day he comes to each one of us individually. When God reveals himself to each individual person, we pray that their heart might be opened enough on that day that they would have seen the love of believers in Christ, that they would see us loving people, that they would see us loving Jesus and loving people through our love for Jesus, that they would see that enough that their hearts would begin to be opened. So on the day that God visits them and beckons them to himself, that their hearts would be able to receive that because it's already been opened and the love of God has already been able to tap into their hearts as they watch us live our lives. So uh, Peter is urging the people to live in such a way that people see and get ready for God based on how you live. Now, one thing that's been really fun for me as I go through 1 Peter is to constantly be thinking back to what conversations with Jesus might Peter be thinking about as Peter writes this. So as we read through as we read through the New Testament, so much of the Old Testament, I mean like mind-blowing amounts. I've just been learning a lot about this this year. Mind-blowing amounts of the New Testament are taken from the Old Testament, more than I have ever learned about. I'm learning about it this year. And so the the New Testament is constantly pulling from the Old Testament, pulling images and pulling um, scripture, certainly, and pulling meaning from the Old Testament in ways that that most of us miss because we we were not raised memorizing the Jewish Old Testament, the which is um, 
yeah, the the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Old Testament. We weren't we weren't raised memorizing it. We know a lot of it, but not necessarily memorizing it. But the writers in the New Testament, they had the Old Testament memorized, and so they are constantly pulling it in into their writing. And that's been fascinating to learn about. But as I read through First Peter, I'm also so first Peter. In in First Peter, Peter is he quotes an, a lot of the Old Testament, so he's doing that, and uh, we're going to see that again in, as we go on in chapter two. He's quoting a lot of Old Testament scripture. But another thing I think he's doing is there are a number of times where I can read what Peter has written, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I think that he's thinking about when Jesus said this. <laughs> like he might really be going back to. When Jesus said this, and then Peter is passing that on, uh, rephrasing it, putting it in his own words, but um, rephrasing it and, and putting it in his letter. So here, when he says, live such good lives amongst the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits, I hear in my head, I can, I just see Peter and I see Jesus and the 12 sitting on the mountain and I wonder if he's thinking about in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 when in the Sermon of the Mount when Jesus said, let your light shine amongst others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Like I wonder if that if if they're thinking if he's thinking that like oh my goodness Jesus told us to let our light shine uh, so that they might see our good deeds and glorify the, our God in heaven and it seems to me like Peter might be beckoning back to that moment here all right verse 13 he goes on to explain okay how do we actually do this as we live such good lives amongst the pagans how do we do that here are some of the ways Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. All right, I just want to pause there. This is difficult to read, certainly, because the emperor at the time was Emperor Nero. And I'm not sure yet if Emperor Nero's really extreme persecution of the Christians had started. It seems like that the, his extreme persecution started around 64 AD. And this letter, the estimated time for this letter is like 63, 64 AD. So the persecution is intensifying. It's not as it's most intense yet. In fact, I've learned that under Domitian, I think I mentioned this already in this podcast, but under Domitian, which was 80 to 90 AD, that was a much greater persecution even than Nero had. Um, but nonetheless, they are being persecuted. Whether or not it's the most extreme, they are being persecuted. And Peter tells them to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So that is that is just a tough, that's tough. And I don't have a great, I don't have great insight into that, except that I know that the ultimate goal of our lives is not religious freedom. The scriptures make that absolutely clear, that religious freedom is not a guarantee. Uh, religious freedom given to us by the state or the government is not a guarantee. 
we are free in Christ, and that is our only guarantee, and that's an absolute guarantee that we are free in Christ no matter what the government says and no matter what the government does to us. The government might take our lives from us because of our faith in Christ, but the government will never take away Jesus from us. It cannot ever. So we are free in Christ, and that is the only freedom we are ever guaranteed on this earth. So it's a hard word to obey the be, obey the emperor, um, to honor the emperor, submit to the emperor. But that is the word we are given. And uh, in verse fifteen, it says, "For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people." Again, we are our our whole lives, even the way that we submit to authority, our whole lives are putting on display for others the lordship of Jesus and pointing to the lordship of Jesus. And even if what we are called to do seems like it would go against our our natural human inclination, it does. <laughs> yes, it does go against our natural human inclination. But through that, We are drawing people to know God and to know the love of Christ and to know the freedom in Christ that transcends and goes beyond any possible freedom that's here on earth. Um, Also in verse 15, when uh, Peter writes, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I think about 1 John 3, 8, which is so similar. When, when John is writing, he says, Children, let us love one another, not in word and speech, but in action and in truth. So let our actions speak louder than our words. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be speaking words. We need to preach the gospel. We need to speak up for Jesus. But as we speak up for Jesus, let our actions also speak loudly for Jesus through the humility we show, the love we show, the kindness, the surrender, the submission to authority. Um, Let us show the humility of Christ through our lives. In verse 16, he says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. All right, I really love this. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Okay, now this is just, con- we just have to continue centering ourselves on around the idea that these are not necessarily people that we would consider to be free. A lot of them are exiles, which we've talked about at length, who are running to the the furthest parts of the Roman Empire, to places that they can hide underground, uh, to flee persecution. And... Yet, in the midst of that, as they are exiles, Peter is telling them to live as free people. Why should they live as free people when they are being ruled by the Romans? Because we are free in Christ. (laughs) Because the freedom we have in Christ goes so far beyond any type of freedom that we might have in this world that a worldly government, an earthly government, could ever give to us. The freedom we have in Christ 
transcends that so drastically that no matter, no matter your place in this world, no matter your place in this world, you have freedom in Christ and you can live as free people. I, in, when I read this verse, I also think of uh, the Apostle Paul writing in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. I love, I love this verse, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Christ set you free. He didn't set you free for you to live like you're a victim and for you to live like you are in shambles and in pity and pity yourself and feel sorry for yourself. No, no matter your place in life, no matter your station in life, you can live as a free person. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And now Peter goes on in that to say, uh, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So you are free, but you are not free to sin. <laughs> he already said, abstain continuously abstain, he said, from sinful desires. Um, when the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.1 that I was just quoting, when he says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, he says, but don't use this freedom as an excuse to fall back under the law. Don't do that. <laughs> Peter, so he's going one direction, like don't use your freedom as a way to like an excuse to be like, well, I'm going to just fall back under the law because I can and I want to. Don't do that. And Peter goes the other direction and he says also, don't use your freedom as a way to fall into sin. Like you're not free to sin. Don't sin. Abstain from sin. Live your life as God's slave. Live your life as somebody whose entire purpose is to give honor and glory and to live for God. That is the purpose of our lives, to give honor and glory and praise to God through our lives on this earth. And then in verse 17, he says, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. All right, we're going to go on to verse 18. This is a really tough text as well. Uh, I just want to say, first of all, as we get through this, as we go through this verse by verse, what I'm going to continually remind us of is that this is not pro-slavery in any way whatsoever. He's going to call slavery unjust suffering. Like he says that in the middle of this text, I'll show you where it is. He's going to call slavery unjust suffering. So this is not pro-slavery. But what he is doing is he is addressing the slaves who have come to Christ. Now, I find this just totally fascinating that there are Christians who who their station in life is they are slaves. Now, the specific word that he's using as slaves is, is uh, the word oiketai, oiketai, which means more specifically household or domestic servants. Slaves, like the traditional slaves that we would think of when we think slaves and slavery, that's the word douloi. He's not using that word. So he is, although that is used other places in the New Testament, but Peter right here is talking specifically about household or domestic servants. And um, But both of them, whether you are a traditional slave or more of a household servant, many, many had come to faith in Christ. And what I've learned also through studying the early church is that Usually, especially when um, because it was illegal for Christians to gather for worship, 
Uh, and because there were so many slaves who had come to Christ and wanted to worship with the body of believers in, in a number of cities, and many of the cities of the early church. Uh, the, the, these early church services often happened in the middle of the night. So slaves could go to them. Um, they often were going to their worship services. Uh, and it, if, they, if they had been found out that they were going to worship services against the will of their owners, they may be hurt. They may be killed. Um, some of them maybe had permission from their owners to go to these worship services, but it had to be in the middle of the night. It couldn't interfere with their work time, with, with any daytime hours. And so the early church, I mean, it's just amazing. It's amazing. They were, and, and actually I shouldn't even say just the early church. It's all over the world right now. All over the world right now. That Christians are so desiring to meet together. They so cherish their times of meeting together. That they are willing to go in the middle of the night. They are walking long distances in the dark. They are trying to meet safely in a time and place where it is very unsafe for them to meet. Knowing that if discovered, they may be killed or put in prison. That was the case in the early church. And that is the case now all over the world. And let me tell you, I love going to church. I love church. Ask my family how much I love church. I love church. Our family does highs and lows um, at the supper table every day. Like what was your high of the day and what was your low of the day? And every single Sunday, my high was going to church. Like I love going to church. <laughs> and yet... I don't think that my love of going to church pales in comparison with these people who were sneaking out of their houses in the middle of the night, or maybe not even sneaking. Maybe they had permission to go, but it had to be in the middle of the night. They were giving up sleep to go to church and to fellowship with the other believers. That is awesome. And I love knowing that there were slaves and servants in attendance. I just love knowing that. I think it's so cool. It's so cool because in in many of Paul's letters and in Peter's letters, as we're seeing right here, they address the slaves who are there and the servants who are there. So these letters are being read aloud in worship service. And I think it's so wonderful that they are addressing the slaves and the servants in attendance. And they're trying to help them to understand how to, how to understand their station in life. Like your station in life right now is that as a servant or a slave. Should you put all your energy into trying to escape that or get out of that or fight against that, which everything in me says absolutely yes, yes. Uh, and, but, and yet in the midst of that, we have our apostles trying to teach them how to live. Like how do you live right now in the station you're in? How do you live right now in this station? How can we give you strength and encouragement and empowerment to live in this station? So it's not that they are pro-slavery by no means, absolutely not, but they are trying to equip servants and slaves to live and flourish for Christ in the midst of the situation that they find themselves in. So in verse 18, it says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. 
For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So other translations there say that this finds favor in the eyes of God. And I I prefer that. I love that he's letting them know that, look, when you are getting beaten for, for unjustly, like you did nothing wrong and you are getting beaten, he's letting them know that God is looking at you with favor. Like we pray this over our kids every night. We pray the blessing from Numbers. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the, uh, may the Lord turn his eyes upon you with favor and give you his peace. And so when it says commendable here, it's commendable in the sight of God when you suffer for doing good. Um, a better translation is that is that there you find favor with God when that happens. Like God turns towards you with eyes full of favor for you. So would you know, dear slave, as you are suffering unjustly, or any person who is finding themselves in a situation right now where you are suffering unjustly, injustice has happened to you and it's causing you to suffer. Would you know that in the midst of that, God turns his face towards you and his eyes are full of favor for you. He loves you. He has compassion on you. He looks upon you with grace and mercy and adoration. And he beckons to you in love in the midst of what you're suffering. In verse 21, Peter says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So Peter is just letting the servant or the slave or any person who's going through suffering, he's letting them know that you were called to this because Christ suffered for you. And he he set you an example that you can follow in his steps. So when Christ was suffering, he was... He was making a way for you to suffer as well, to suffer alongside him. It's not that he wants you to suffer. It's it's not that God is delighted when we suffer. He's not. Our suffering grieves the heart of God. Uh, When my mom died, the verse that I clung most to was Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to us when we suffer. He grieves with us when we suffer. He looks upon us with eyes full of love and favor. But he also wants us to know that Christ has suffered for us and that we can follow in his footsteps, that, that Christ has suffered to set us an example, that we can, we can know how to suffer. We can learn how to suffer with Jesus. We can know that he's going to walk with us in suffering. We can know that we have a God who doesn't leave us hanging in our suffering, but who will come into our suffering and join us in our suffering. When Peter said this, I have to think he was thinking back to a few things that Jesus said. Because Jesus said a number of things that are very similar to 2 Peter 1.21. So I'm going to reread 2 Peter 1.21, which is the verse I just read. Um, And it says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 
And when Peter wrote that, I just I just wonder, okay, what was he thinking about? Like, what teachings of Jesus was he thinking about when he said that? My mind goes to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus is speaking, and he says, If anyone should come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus himself said, look, you're going you're gonna to have a cross to bear. There's going to be a cross you need to carry. If you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, there's going to be suffering involved, and you're going to have to carry your cross. And then in John 13, when Jesus was washing his disciples' feet, Jesus was acting like a servant. So here Peter is addressing those household servants, specifically in, in the chunk of scripture we're reading right now. And I wonder if he was thinking about in John chapter 13, when Jesus acted like a servant, like a household servant, when Jesus got down and he washed all the disciples' feet, that is the job of a household servant. And Jesus took on that role by washing his disciples' feet. And he says in verse uh, John 13, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so should you wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So I wonder, I just wonder, when Peter is writing his words in, in the letter of 1 Peter, I wonder if he's beckoning back in his mind to these times when Jesus told his disciples that they are going to have to suffer and that they're going to have to be a servants to one another and follow the example that Jesus set. So Peter's going to go on a little bit more here, and he's going to give us some verses from the Old Testament that that explain the example that Jesus set. So he just said that Jesus set an example that we should follow in his steps. And then in verse 22, he's going to quote from Isaiah 53, and he's actually going to quote different parts of Isaiah 53 for the next few verses. So first of all, he says, he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 9. He says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So Jesus, it was unjust suffering. There there was nothing that deserved suffering that Jesus did. And then in verse 23, this is not a quotation. Peter is writing this. Peter says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, this is really tender to think about because as Jesus was having insults hurled at him on the night he was betrayed, in the middle of the night, uh, when after he was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, and he wasn't retaliating, and when he was suffering and not making any threats, during that time, Peter was outside the house of the high priest in the courtyard area, and he was talking to people around the fire and denied Jesus three times. And then he went and it says he wept bitterly after that. So we don't know how much of this Peter actually saw uh, as Jesus was being insulted and uh, suffering, we don't know how much of this Peter saw, but we know he that it was he knew that it was going on. Certainly, I just wonder like how this how hard that verse was for him to write. Like as people were insulting Jesus and Jesus was suffering and not making any threats and not retaliating, Peter was in the midst of denying him, and yet Jesus also didn't get mad at Peter. 
Uh, Jesus didn't retaliate against Peter. Jesus didn't threaten Peter. Jesus forgave Peter. And I just think that must be so tender in Peter's heart as he is writing these words. And then I love at the end of verse 23 when Peter writes, Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That is a word for me. Like as I go through things that I think are unfair or I'm being mistreated or misunderstood or taken very wrong, I have to remember this to entrust myself to the one who judges justly. Like there's no reason for me to get all bent out of shape or go on the defensive or the offensive, either one, (laughs) Uh, but just entrust myself to the one who judges justly. That's exactly what Jesus did. And if Jesus can do it as he is being killed, I can do it. Like I should be able to just entrust myself to the one who judges justly. Then Peter's going to go back to Isaiah 53, which he's going to quote. Um, The first part of this is verse 4, he himself bore our sins. But That's actually from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So if you look back in your Bible at Isaiah 53, verse 4, it's going to say, He himself bore our suffering. But this says, He himself bore our sins. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. says, He himself bore our sins. That's what Isaiah 53 says in the Greek translation, the Septuagint of the of the Hebrew text of Isaiah 53. So he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And then he's going to quote another part of Isaiah 53 verse 5, by his wounds you have been healed. I want you to pause and just think about that verse we just read, 1 Peter 2.24. It's one of my favorite verses of all time. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Wrap your mind around that. It's actually impossible to wrap my mind wrap your mind around it, but if you just like pause for a moment and try, like Jesus inside of his body, in his flesh, somehow, somehow, he had all of the sin of the world inside of his body. And then in Colossians chapter 2, it says that he actually nailed our sin to the cross, which makes perfect sense because our sin was in the body, in his body, and he was nailed to the cross. So our sin was nailed to the cross. Colossians chapter 2 says that our sin was nailed to the cross and he canceled it. So he canceled our sin. It was nailed to the cross and he canceled it. But it was in his body on the cross. So when we think about when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father had to turn his face away. I love that lyric from How Deep the Father's Love for Us, one of my favorite hymns of all time. And it says, um, the father turned his face away because Jesus was full of sin. God the Son was full of sin. And for a time, I don't know how long, whether it was momentary or if it was lasted the whole three days that uh, Jesus was in the tomb, I'm not sure. But for a time, there was a separation in the Trinity between the Father and the Son for the first time in all of eternity, for the only time in all of eternity. The Father had to turn his face away because Jesus had sin in his body. 
He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds. We have been healed. And then Peter's going to end this chapter uh, with another statement from Isaiah 53. For you were like sheep going astray. That's the part that's from Isaiah 53. And then Peter wraps up and he says, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. I just love that. You have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. I love that he went back to talking about our soul. Because if you remember when we started this podcast 35 minutes ago, we read verse 11 and he says that these sinful desires wage war against our souls. Sin wages war against our very souls. So therefore, let us return, come back to, continually come back to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls, the Lord Jesus. That's what my desire is today, that we could come back to over and over and over again you get a constant invitation to come back. It's not like a one-time thing. It's a continually, every day, keep on coming back to the shepherd and overseer of your souls because he cares for you. He loves you. Amen and amen. I hope you have an awesome day, and I will join you again soon as we look into 1 Peter chapter 3. Have a super day. Bye.